If you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first 17 verses of Paul's letter to the Romans. It'll be familiar to you. Before uh, we read the passage, I'd just like to set the context for what we're about to read in case you're unfamiliar with it. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church that had been formed at Rome around uh, 57 AD. So that would have been about 20 years after uh, Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. Uh, Paul did not start the church at Rome. Uh, maybe it started sort of in the wake of Pentecost. We don't know it, the exact details. Uh, but because Paul didn't know this, uh, this church in a personal sort of way, maybe like he, he knew the church at Ephesus or, or Corinth, uh, you'll notice that he's going to take extra time to outline Uh, his gospel message, and that's what we'll be turning to today. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring, uh, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we uh, come to your word, we desire to hear you speak. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at these verses, you would help me as I seek to explain them and proclaim them, that you would help us to have ears open to hear and to understand what you are saying to us, but also, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are receptive, hearts that are open, hearts that are prepared to be refreshed again by the gospel of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. What is uh, the gospel? And what is the gospel's continuing significance in the life of the Christian? Uh, As we uh, study this text tonight, I think uh, that it will helpfully 
bring some uh, bring into sharper focus the answer to both of these critical questions for us. What is the gospel is a necessary question for us, both because of the importance of the question and all that hangs in the balance when we answer it, but also because of the persistent confusion and fuzziness over how to answer it. Uh, So oftentimes, uh, when you ask someone what the gospel is, my experience, both inside and outside the church, uh, it's a blurry picture. And we want to have as sharp an answer as we can because the gospel is the message which is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It provides the way, the only way, by which men, women, and children can be reconciled to God, that we might be saved from our sins. And yet, since there is so much confusion both inside the church and outside the church, uh, this question deserves our attention because false definitions and and, uh, half definitions abound. The gospel is about more than just the fact that I can be forgiven or that God loves me. Uh, The gospel is more than just a vague reference to the Bible or the message of the kingdom or a particular way of life. And our passage, especially verses 1 through 7, are uh, a particularly clear definition which the Apostle Paul gives to us of the gospel which he and the other apostles in the New Testament proclaim. And so by looking at these verses, Paul will help us move from confusion to clarity as to what the gospel actually is. But there's also confusion uh, for uh, Christians as to what the gospel's continued significance is in our lives. Once we come to believe the gospel and accept the gospel, what are we supposed to do with it? What's the gospel's function? What role does it play? How does it shape our lives as Christians here and now? How does it uh, motivate us in our day-to-day living, particularly in the church? Well, Paul's words in verses 8 to 15 in particular will help give us some direction to this question. And so with those two questions in, the mind, in mind, what is the gospel and what's its continued relevance or purpose in the Christian life, uh, we're going to be looking at this main idea tonight. So if you're taking notes, here's the big idea. That when the message of who Jesus is and what he has done takes hold of us, we will be motivated to pursue relationships where we can mutually encourage one another with this truth, since it's God's powerful message of salvation. So I'm going to show this from our text this evening, and we're going to do that by organizing the message under three headings. First, the message of the gospel, then the ministry of the gospel, and then thirdly, the power of the gospel. So, I want to be as clear as I can starting out uh, uh, on this first question, what is the gospel? So you might know the etymology uh, or origins of the word gospel. It it means good news, but what exactly is that news and what's so good about it? Well, for clarity's sake, I'm going to give you the definition up front and then we're going to go back to the passage and I'm going to show you how this definition comes from the Bible. This is not just Wayne Veenstra's Uh, uh, sort of personal imaginings as to what the message is, but it has its origins in the text. And if it's got its origins in the text, we cannot disregard it. So here's my definition, and you can test it. That the good news of the Bible is Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, who died and was raised from the dead, just as God promised ahead of time, 
And it is the message that by believing in this Jesus, we may have life in his name. Now, this is so important that I'm going to repeat it. The good news of the Bible is Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, who died and was raised from the dead, just as God promised ahead of time. And it's the message that by believing in this Jesus, we may have life in his name. So let's unpack that together from the text. First, we need to see that the gospel is a personal message. Now, when I say personal here, I mean it in the sense that the gospel is a message concerning a person. The good news is not a set of abstract ideas. It's not a way of life or an attitude, first and foremost. The good news, which the Bible declares, centers on a person. Now, we see this if you look down at your Bibles in verses 1 through 3. After uh, introducing himself as a servant and messenger of Christ, Paul uh, uh, sets out uh, that he's been set apart for the gospel of God concerning the Son of God, who is, Paul identifies later, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus is the gospel. Paul spells out for us who this Jesus is by saying that he descended from David, the great king of Israel, who you can read about in the Old Testament. He descended from David according to the flesh. Now, the biographical accounts of Jesus all confirm this for us and make a a point to draw this connection out. Uh, Jesus was a man who was born of the royal line of David, a line that was of particular interest to the biblical authors because God had promised through this line of David to bring his promised rescuer the one who would deliver God's people from their sins. But Jesus is more than that. He's also the eternal Son of God. We see this in verse 3. So he's not only human, but he's also God in the flesh. This is what we confess when we read the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the, uh, the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father. So to put it simply, the gospel is the message of Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. The gospel is also a historical message because it depends on real events that happened in a particular place and at a definite time. In the Bible, the four accounts of Jesus' life, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the history of the person of Jesus. And there's specific details given as to who he is. Now, they speak of how he was born under the reign of Caesar Augustus in Bethlehem to a virgin mother, uh, Mary. He was a refugee who fled to Egypt and then uh, returned and grew up in Galilee. He was a preacher who performed uh, miracles before thousands of eyewitnesses, showing his power over nature and sin and and over sickness and, and even over death. But at the center of his Story. all four biographers of Jesus agree are two closely linked events. Jesus' death by crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead three days later. Jesus' death recorded by the earliest eyewitnesses and admitted to by even early non-Christian uh, sources uh, uh, took place and then it was followed by him being sealed in the tomb And guarded by men whose very lives depended upon keeping that body shut up. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead so that he would no longer appear as the Son of God cloaked in human frailty. 
But now, in his, with his divinity still joined to his glorified humanity, Jesus, by his resurrection, is unveiled to be the Son of God in power. So after Jesus' uh, glorious resurrection, there's this, this power, this heavenly, wonderful power that shines through his humanity that declares him to be the Son of God. And this was a glory that was beheld by as many as 500 people at a single occasion, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. The gospel is a personal message. It's a historical message. It's also a predicted message. Paul makes a point to emphasize that the message of Jesus is one that was foretold centuries ahead of time. The good news about Jesus was promised beforehand through God's prophets, Paul says, and recorded in the Old Testament. Now, uh, I'm a baseball fan. I don't know how many of you are baseball fans, but if you are a baseball fan, you may be aware of the uh, famous debate around the 1932 World Series. Did Babe Ruth predict that he was going to hit a home run on the next pitch? Did the great Bambino call his shot? It's the stuff of legends that uh, this great athlete would call his shot, that he'd hit a home run in the clutch, under pressure. He'd say, this is what I'm going to do, and then that's exactly what he does. And even if, if uh, Ruth called his shot, certainly it was a mixture of both skill and luck. But the message of the Bible is that God not only called his shot ahead of time, but he orchestrated it perfectly. See, Paul wants us to understand that the story of Jesus wasn't a set of events that just sort of happened, and then afterwards there was an interpretive grid that was conveniently placed upon it. No, not at all. In fact, Paul stresses here and elsewhere that God said, this is what is going to happen. This is what I intend to do. And this is the significance of what's going to happen in the person of my son. We see this predicted all sorts of places in the Old Testament. Uh, Most prominently, perhaps, in the prophet Isaiah, who 700 years beforehand predicted the sufferings of Jesus. You may recall, right, him speaking of, of the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The one who, by his wounds, we are healed. He was the the innocent one who, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living, but he was raised again from the dead. There are many other places you could go to see how God foretold this. And you can read the book of Acts and see how the apostles frequently make reference to Old Testament scriptures to make this exact point, that the gospel is a message foretold. And if uh, this good news uh, centers on a person, Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, who's died and resurrected, just as, Jesus, uh, as God foretold, we're also to understand it is a message to be believed and to be shared. Paul, having received a special commission to preach uh, the, the gospel of Jesus as an apostle, he saw the obedience of faith, as he puts it in verse 5, He saw the obedience of faith as the only proper response to this good news, this this message. Now, uh, the meaning of this phrase, the obedience of faith, it's debated whether it's referring to uh, um, uh, the faith which is is in obedience to Jesus' command or whether it's uh, the obedience that accompanies faith. I'm not going to get into that particular uh, debate tonight except to say that Paul sees the point or the, the, the... appropriate response to his gospel message as being faith. 
a trusting embrace. That is the only appropriate response when someone is confronted with the person of Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's biography, and I suspect that many of you are, you'll know that this wasn't always Paul's response to Jesus. He once hated everything about Jesus. He actively sought to squash out any mention of the name of Jesus. He was a persecutor of the church. But then Paul met Jesus. Or maybe we'd be better to say that Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. And it's not always like this, but for Paul, the experience of meeting Jesus was like sitting in a dark room and then having the lights turned on. I mean, initially, Paul goes blind, but the vision of of Jesus, the understanding that here is the resurrected Christ, this was a paradigm-shifting moment for Paul as suddenly he saw Jesus for who he truly was. Here he was, the Son of God in power. And when someone confronts this Jesus, Jesus, as he is set forth in the gospel, the Bible and church history attests that the result is often explosive. Because when Paul encounters this Jesus, and he realizes, here is one who died for me. Here is one who died for my sins. Here is one who has been raised uh, for, for my life. Here is one who has reconciled me to God. He finds himself compelled to speak of this Jesus wherever he is, Is or he 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 is. Substance of Paul's gospel. Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking if you know about him. There are many people who do, but do you know him? Maybe uh, some of you uh, have grown up in a particularly uh, conservative context, and sometimes in such contexts, uh, the mistake can be made that knowing certain truths about Jesus is the same thing as knowing Jesus. Well, they're not the same thing. I can know all sorts of things about the President of the United States and not know the President. And we should not mistake knowing the answers for knowing the Savior. To know him is to encounter him in his power as the one who died and who's been raised again from the dead so that all of my guilt and all of my shame have have melted away so that I can walk into the loving embrace of my heavenly Father. So friend, I wonder, have you obeyed Jesus' command to believe in me? Have you trusted in Jesus No man, no woman, no child can be forgiven of their sins against God. And resurrected. And when a person does believe this gospel of Jesus, they are taken captive. They're taken captive by a message. They're taken captive by a person such that we want to speak it uh, whenever we can wherever we can, to whoever we can, just like Paul. And that's the second point of this message, the ministry of the gospel. And it's the answer, uh, a answer to our second question, what's the gospel's continued significance in the life of the Christian? 
After greeting his fellow Christians in Rome, Paul expresses his thanksgiving uh, to God for them uh, because he's, rehe- he's heard uh, reports of their uh, faith. The church at Rome uh, was made up of, of both Jews and Gentiles. They were living under the shadow of the Roman. A, a consistent item for prayer on his, his prayer list. Maybe you noticed while we were reading this. He says that he prayed with, uh, for them without ceasing and always in my prayers. So Paul not only occasionally gives thanks for them, uh, but he constantly gives thanks for them. And he brings a specific request to God for them as he gives thanks for them. He prays that he would be able to visit these Christians in Rome. Now Paul later in his letter, elaborates on why this was an an object or a request in his prayers. In Romans 15, 22, uh, Paul says uh, he longed to see the Roman church for many years, but he was hindered in doing that because of other uh, gospel or ministry obligations. Uh, But now he, he says, I think I have the opportunity to come and see you. And there he says one of the significant reasons for why he wants to see uh, the church at Rome is because uh, Paul has this burning evangelistic missionary zeal uh, to speak of Jesus where Jesus has not been named. Paul has received a special commission from the Lord uh, to be an apostle, a messenger to uh, the Gentiles. And uh, Spain, uh, this Roman colony, uh, they hadn't heard of Jesus, and so he sees the church at Rome as a helpful springboard for him engaging in missionary work there uh, to bring the gospel to a new place. But Paul's not just using the church at Rome. He doesn't just see them as a convenient pit stop along the way. He also uh, longs to see the Roman church for another reason. And he gives that to us in verse 11. Paul says he longs or he yearns for, he he deeply desires to see these Christians face to face so that he could give them some spiritual gift. Some of you might be uh, familiar with the uh, charismatic or Pentecostal tradition uh, within uh, the church. They're called charismatic because of their emphasis on the charisma, uh, the, the gifts, meaning specifically uh, um, spiritual or supernatural gifts, oftentimes associated with uh, word gifts like the, the gifts of, of tongues and prophecy. Now, there are a couple of reasons for why I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about here. I don't think he's, he has in mind coming to the church at Rome and imparting to them a specific spiritual gift. So it's not like Paul's anticipating that he's going to come to Rome and he is going to bless the church at Rome with the spiritual gift of administration so they never have a dysfunctional potluck again. I mean, he, he, sees, he doesn't see a specific gift in view here. Rather, Paul's speaking more broadly to say that he desires to give them some gift whatever that gift might be. And he goes on then to immediately speak of being mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And he goes on even to say that he he has an eagerness to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I think it's interesting that Paul says that he is excited to preach the gospel to them, to the church at Rome. 
Chris Rash, a commentator, observes that uh, Paul does not tell the Roman Christians to set up an evangelistic meeting for when he gets there, right? That's maybe what we would expect from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul doesn't tell them that he is eager to preach to unbelievers at Rome, though we know that Paul has an unquestioned evangelistic zeal. That's why he wants to go to Spain. But because the gospel has so deeply taken hold of Paul, he's been gripped by it, right? This gospel that we've seen in verses 1 through 7, he is eager to proclaim this gospel to his fellow Christians who are at Rome. It's in this context that we're to understand what Paul's talking about when he he mentions some spiritual gift. This spiritual gift was to, to come to them as he spoke about the person and work of Jesus, as he preached this gospel to them. And this was to the end, or the purpose, of strengthening these believers. The idea is that Paul wanted to reinforce them. He wanted to bolster them so that they would be able to stand firm uh, uh, against all the trials and temptations which come with living as a Christian in the world. You can maybe imagine that, that being a Christian in Rome was not an uh, easy thing. It was not something you did for convenience or just out of tradition because mom and dad did it. And though Paul says, your faith is renowned, it is known through all the world, I thank God for it, yet Paul sees a need to speak of Christ to these believers, mature believers, to strengthen them, to energize them, to hold fast to Christ. But we need to say even more, because even as Paul expects that he's going to go to Rome and he's going to strengthen uh, the believers that are there by speaking of Jesus with them, uh, he did not see this ministry of encouragement as a one-way street. Look at verse 12, how Paul uh, emphasizes this point, this idea of a mutuality uh, that's in play. He, 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 wants, he sees that, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't know about you, but when I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of someone with a massive theological intellect. Right? And here is someone who is, is profoundly godly. Right? And, and we might be tempted to think like such a, a man like, Paul, who has written books of the Bible, he would not need such encouragement. But that's not the case from our text. Even the most mature of Christians stand in need of being ministered to by their fellow Christians through the message of Jesus. Now, sometimes, admittedly, this is a tough conviction to own. Uh, I remember Uh, particularly when I started in pastoral ministry, but even sometimes today, feeling out of place, preaching to a congregation in which many of the people are uh, more mature, smarter, godlier, wiser uh, than I am. What could I possibly say to these people? Uh, What what use could I be uh, to them? Maybe you've uh, felt that way too. You look around church, Uh, You're uncertain of whether you could be much good to anyone. And there's a a nasty spiritual weed that tends to grow up in this type of soil. We begin to think of ourselves as recipients of ministry and not also as agents of gospel ministry. 
So let me get more specific. Within the church, and especially in churches where the preaching ministry is received with great enjoyment, uh, as I suspect uh, your church would attest, there can be a mindset that creeps in that sees the motive for regular participation in the church as being, uh, we're here to listen to solid gospel preaching. Now, don't get me wrong, our tradition rightly emphasizes the value and the importance of gospel preaching. I think preaching matters incredibly, right? We're hearing from God. Right? We should cast open our, our, our arms widely to receive what he has to say to us. But if your understanding of what it means to be a church member stops at listening to good sermons or being fed, as we say colloquially, you've got an incomplete picture of what life in the church is supposed to be. And this is no small problem. Because if worship services, coming to worship on Sunday, uh, is about receiving a good sermon and that's it, then why not stay on the couch and watch the sermons from there? Now, sometimes people will add that uh, we need the church because we need accountability. And I'd say, yes, that's true. There's great value in people who are holding us accountable uh, to grow, uh, that that we live consistent lives with our Christian profession. But even here, you'll notice that there's a way of understanding that the church is just, uh, it offers me a service that I need. It gives me the accountability that I need. And I'll participate under those terms and conditions. Now, this way of thinking, I'll call it receptionist thinking, will result oftentimes in sporadic attendance at worship and being disconnected from others in the church. Because, and I've seen this time and time again, we'll treat gathering together with the church for worship or maybe in smaller settings like uh, small groups or Bible studies or prayer meeting. Uh, We'll treat these sorts of things like a trip to Meijer. We go when we need our pantry stocked up. These words from Paul, I think, give us an important challenge. They push us to think more broadly. They push us to have a, a paradigm shift in how we think about the church because we're not supposed to think about church only in terms of what we receive, though we receive much there, but also what we might give when we come together. Because as the church gathers for worship on Sunday, or as we gather in homes or for prayer, We each come with a ministry to give as well as a ministry to receive. As we come to speak with Christ or speak about Christ with one another. So it's not just a matter of hearing Christ preach to me. Though hopefully the sermon is clear, it's true, it's compelling. But it's also in turn about me speaking Christ to other people. So just think, if Paul, an apostle, was eager, he was eager to give encouragement, but also to receive encouragement as he came and gathered with these believers face to face, right? Shouldn't we, who are not Paul's, shouldn't we be eager to gather together in different settings with our fellow Christians for a regular exchange of gifts? As as I encourage you with, with my faith, you encourage me with yours as we speak about the gospel and what God is doing in our lives. But practically speaking, how do you do this? How do we encourage one another by each other's faith? I'm going to suggest four practical ways that I think you can embrace this vision. First, show up. Uh, This is so simple, we might be tempted to overlook it, but you cannot 
uh, encourage, and you cannot be encouraged if you don't bother to show up. Paul wanted to be at, uh, he wanted to be present with the Christians at Rome so that he could encourage them. The first step that you need to take is just being present so that you are positioned to meaningfully encourage other people. So whether that's corporate worship and just committing to be at worship Sunday morning and Sunday evening, or whether that's Bible study, by just uh, putting yourself in a, a place where you can, uh, you need to put yourself in a place where you can regularly encourage other Christians. Now, there's always all sorts of reasons why we can't go. And I, I, I've heard them. I know them. I, I've given them myself, right? I, I didn't do the lesson. Uh, I'm sort of busy. The kids are crazy. I won't get anything out of it. But see, even there, I want to challenge us. Uh, sure, do not, you don't overcommit yourself uh, or, or think carefully about your commitments. But when you do commit to being part of a team or, or a part of a group, show up. God is placing you there. He's placing you in that women's Bible study or as a Sunday greeter or on that service team. He's placing you there, not just for what uh, you, you can get out of it, but what uh, he wants to do through you as an agent who is encouraging the faith of other people. And you can't do that if you're not there. So show up. Secondly, serve. What a great way to put yourself in a position to encourage others and be encouraged. Commit to finding a practical way to serve others so that your faith in action will point other people to uh, Jesus. So here's one way you can encourage your fellow believers. Serve on the nursery team. I've heard that's uh, maybe a need here. And not always because it's a fun job. I'm a parent of, of three kids, six and under, so I know that it's not always the case. But do it because you are thankful for what Jesus has done for you. And you want the, the moms and dads of young kids in the congregation to have a chance to hear the gospel and be encouraged in their faith this Sunday. Right? That's just one way you can put your faith in Christ in action to help build up the young parents uh, in your church. And we need it. So consider that. Or commit to helping out with hospitality by planning to have people over on Sunday. And just pray with people. Ask them, how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? So secondly, serve. Third, speak up. Find opportunities to speak of Christ with other believers. Not just sort of speak about the generalities of your week, but speak of Christ. Now ideally, this is something that is just going to naturally flow out of us. We listen to a sermon together and we say, wow, I learned this in that sermon. Or wasn't it wonderful that X... Or what did you think about why? Right? Uh, those are, hopefully those are things that are just springing out from us as the word takes hold of us. Or we're naturally asking people, what have you learned about Christ this week? How, how has Christ shown himself faithful to you this week? But many of us, uh, we need a little help. We need a little prompting. We need some formal structures that are going to encourage us to be speaking about Christ. So I want to encourage you. Either find someone you can uh, connect with one-on-one -on -one or get in a group that is going to uh, just naturally force you to intentionally speak about Christ with others and intentionally ask people, what is Christ doing in your life? Right? It doesn't matter if you're a mature saint because Paul didn't graduate from the gospel. He needed to be encouraged by the gospel all the same. And so find someone to speak about Christ 
with. So maybe next time uh, you're with some friends, just start uh, uh, by, by doing this. Just share, how has Christ encouraged you this week? It's a very simple question. You've got to be thinking about it. It might feel awkward at first, but just ask that you would be mutually encouraged in one another's faith. And fourthly, pray. Notice how Paul's eagerness to speak of the gospel leads him to pray for opportunities to do so. He prays that God would connect him to the church at Rome so that he could share in gospel encouragement with them. And so we should take our cue from Paul. I was uh, challenged by this personally. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, Saturday night, I was praying for the Sunday service the next day, and I was asking that God would uh, help connect me or, or help my paths cross with one visitor uh, uh, at church that next morning and, and one person who I could encourage with the scripture from the sermon message. Uh, well, uh, um, the, the, the uh, small size of my faith was proved when before the service even started, uh, the Lord had sent four visitors across my path, uh, and, and I had a, a wonderful conversation after the service with another believer in, in the foyer. Uh, but it was just an example uh, of here is God who is pleased to answer prayers uh, to work through us to encourage other people in their faith. I didn't answer Paul's prayer right away, but I'd encourage you, pray for gospel opportunities. Pray for opportunities to speak of Jesus. But all this leads us to our last point. We've considered the message of the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, and now very briefly we'll turn to the power of the gospel. Verses 16 and 17 could very well demand a sermon entirely of their own or several as has been done previously, but we're going to consider them just to say this. The reason that the gospel of Jesus should make us so eager to speak of him is because we believe it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We believe that this is a powerful message. The message of Christ who died and was raised from the dead is a message unlike anything else this world has to offer. It's a message that God is saving sinners every day from the judgment that they, that we deserve. By the gospel of his son, God is taking sinners from all sorts of backgrounds, all of whom as rebels against his holiness deserve his righteous condemnation. And God is taking them and he is bringing them. He is transferring us into the kingdom of his son. The gospel of Jesus is the means by which this kingdom transfer happens, but it's also the means by which we persevere in it. In 1 Corinthians 15, another place where Paul so eloquently outlines his gospel and the essence of it, he says in in verses 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, in which you stand, present tense, and by which you are being saved, ongoing sense, if you hold fast to it. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, rather, is not just our ticket uh, uh, onto the salvation train. The gospel is the rails by which God brings us safely home. And it is a powerful message. It is the message for salvation to all who believe. It is a message when it grips us, when we meet the person of his son, We will be eager to speak of it whenever we can, wherever we can, and to whoever will bear to listen to it. And so I want to encourage you, if you want to be a church that is gripped by the gospel, 
You've encountered Jesus. One of the ways that we show that, one of the ways that we live that is by speaking this gospel to one another, not just from the pulpit, but wherever and whenever we can. May God grant it. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus. It is our only hope. We thank you, Jesus, that you came, that you willingly gave your life for us and for our salvation, and that you were raised again in power, and that you are seated at your Father's right hand, and even now by your Spirit, you are drawing people to yourself. And Lord, I pray that as you help us to encounter you, the living Christ, that the natural outcome of that would be a spirit like Paul that is eager to speak of you with others, and that is eager to speak of you with our fellow believers, that we might be mutually encouraged as we wait for the day of your returning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.